Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Picture the glory of the Lord. Father, thank you for the chance we have to come together as a body of believers and, and sing and pray and study. Father, I pray that you would just speak to us clearly. I pray through the power of the Spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts. Lord, let us see and experience your glory Speak to us in you in profound ways, Lord. May we be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. As you're flipping, let me just remind you, this upcoming weekend is our D6 family ministry. Dr. Ted Tripp, who's written what I believe, and it's my personal opinion, the best parenting book out there, period. The best biblical model of parenting I've ever read called Shepherding a Child's Heart. Uh, It's sold worldwide. He travels the world and speaks. He will be here in person Friday night and Saturday morning. We're giving you the chance to be part of that. Register online. You can go out here and register and and hear more about the schedule, but you don't want to miss it. If you have children, you don't want to miss it. Some of you are saying, well, my children are grown. Friday night, he's going to talk about how the family ought to bring glory to the Lord biblically. It's a beautiful picture. You do not want to miss it. Please put that on your calendar. This coming week, you can sign up. It's not too late. All right, this is week three in our study we've entitled In the Beginning. It's a study through the book of Genesis. Now, I want to review for you last week what we said, where we went, how the Lord spoke to us. We saw, as we studied last week, the first day of creation. In verse 3, God said, let there be light. And we saw that in that verse and in the context of creation, God gives us this picture. He gives us this purpose. He gives us this idea of design. So really from the beginning, there's been this plan. Now you're going to see that through and through. You saw it last week. You're going to see it this week. You'll see it for the next few weeks. It wasn't as if God just decided one day to create. It was instead this plan, this pattern, this order, and the, the order that he formed all through creation. And we saw it begin last week in Genesis 1 verse 3 where God said, let there be light. And we saw that God begins his creation with a picture of light, which if you study light, Old and New Testament, light is always a picture of the glory of the Lord. So we saw God's plan and his order, we saw his glory, and then we talked about his timing. We made a a, a pretty, I think, compelling biblical case that the way we ought to interpret Genesis 1 are six 24-hour days. I think the Bible bears that out. I think that's seen in other parts of Scripture. I think we can make a pretty solid case biblically that this is a literal week. And so that is our foundation with the understanding of the glory of the Lord seen throughout creation, with the understanding of, <clears throat> of his design and creation and his purpose and his plan. We're going to move now into verse 6. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Genesis chapter 1, <clears throat> excuse me, beginning in verse 6. And God said, and there's the pattern how each day starts, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Now here's the first truth I want you to get as we study day two and understand God's creation and his plan and his calling in our lives is this. Number one, God created, we see in day two, an atmosphere that is perfectly suited for life. 
God's going to create for us on day two an atmosphere that is perfectly suited for life. Now let me just remind you of verses one and two in Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one, verses one and two, the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now here's the explanation, here's the description. The earth was formless and empty, right? There wasn't any form yet. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So we see that what God's going to do, and we see this in the pattern of Scripture, and we'll see this even today, God is going to form in the first few days a formless and void earth. He's going to prepare for us. He's going to prepare for his creation. He's going to prepare and create in such a way that life can be sustained. And so we see now in day two that God's going to do something very interesting. As he forms and prepares all part of his creation, all part of his design, the Bible says he's going to do something very interesting with the water. Now take a look at verse six again. Pull those up if you would for me, Stephen. God says, let there be an expanse. Some scriptures say a firmament. Some even say a vault. There's something between water to separate water from water. Now the first thing we think of here is land, right? Well, God's going to form the land. No, that's not going to happen until the next day. We're not to land yet. Instead, he gives us a clue in verse 7 of what he's actually doing. God made the expanse, and he separated, this is important, the water under the expanse, see that, from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, see that? And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. There's the sense that the earth is filled with water. God's going to come, and he's going to create this expanse, or this firmament, or this vault, or this separation, so that there's water below, which we would understand as the ocean, and lakes, and streams, and ponds, and there's water above, we would understand as the cloud covering, or the water vapor, the moisture that's in the atmosphere. So God's going to create for us, in day two, this condition, this atmosphere, that is perfectly suited for life. Now, some people would argue, well, isn't it interesting that the world evolved and the atmosphere evolved just perfectly for life to be sustained. I would argue instead that it was created that way. I think God took a formless world. I think God took a world that was void and didn't have anything in it and he began to shape it and mold it simply with his word and his command so he could then fill it with life. Now I did some research this week on the atmosphere. The atmosphere is a uh, A fascinating thing that we all take for granted, right? I mean, the fact that you're breathing right now, you're taking the atmosphere for granted. If you were on any other planet in the known universe, now there's some that they think may have, but they they can't, they don't know. They're so far away they can't really measure. As far as we know, there's no other planet in the universe where you could breathe in and breathe out and survive. And so I started doing some research on the atmosphere, and I've got some very interesting stats for you. Some people would say <clears throat> that all these things happen randomly. I think instead what we begin to see as we piece these things together is a plan, is a pattern that God stated in creation. Here, here's some facts. I've got them on the screen. I want you to listen to these very interesting facts. This is all about the atmosphere, right? The firmament that God created. Oxygen comprises 21% of the atmosphere. You breathe that in, right? That gives you life. If it were 25%, just a tiny bit higher, fires would erupt uncontrollably. If it were 15%, just a little bit lower, human beings would suffocate. So there's this razor-thin window of opportunity, right? There's this razor-thin window that shows if there's a certain amount of oxygen, it's got to be exactly right, humans can survive. Otherwise, we would die. Some say it evolved like that. I think God created it just for life. Here's another truth. 
Carbon dioxide makes up much of the rest of our atmosphere. Without it, plant life would be impossible, right? Now watch this. Plants require carbon dioxide, which they take in while giving off oxygen. Animals and humans are the opposite. Breathing in oxygen, exhaling carbon dioxide, plant life sustains human and animal life and vice versa in a magnificent, precise, self-sustaining cycle. Isn't it interesting that the plants give us exactly what we need and we give the plants exactly what they need? Isn't that interesting? It's a picture of the design of the Lord, isn't it? It's a picture of his grandeur and his plan. Look at the next stat we have. Nitrogen, making up 78% of the Earth's atmosphere, dilutes the oxygen and serves a vital function as a fertilizer for plants. This is interesting. Watch this. During thunderstorms, millions of lightning bolts around the Earth, and by the way, just pause for a second. The video we watched, it was a little faster. They spent, did you see the lightning throughout? That was fascinating to me. The history, you know, kind of geography guy in me wanted to pause and say, now there's Florida. Can you see the outline of Florida? Did you see Florida as we flew over? Did you see Italy? How many saw Italy? Oh, you got to watch it again. Go home and look it up. I'll, I'll put it somewhere so you can find it. Italy, down across the Mediterranean. You can see Israel. You can see, if you watch it again and you're looking, you can see the Nile River lit up. Why? Because people live by the Nile. That's where it's fertile. You can see the delta in, in uh, the Nile River there and, and on down through. As it snakes on down into, into Africa. It's, it's, it's amazing. Go back and watch it. But I, I'm, I'm moving beyond what I want to talk about. So here we go. Back to this. During thunderstorms, millions of lightning bolts around the globe, around the earth, each day combine nitrogen and oxygen, right? So when a lightning bolt strikes, oxygen and nitrogen are combined, creating compounds that are washed to the earth by rain where they can be utilized by plants. It's like fertilizer. So every time it lightnings, as scary as it may seem to our little children, there's a purpose for it. You understand that? It didn't just happen. God created it like that. God created it so it could sustain life. We, we've got another truth. Bring, bring the next truth up. The thickness of the earth's crust was, if it was greater than too much oxygen would be transferred to the crust to support life. If it were thinner, volcanic and tectonic activity would make life untenable, right? We couldn't survive. Again, there's this, there's this picture, and these are just a few of the verses. I mean, this is just a few of the examples. There, there's so many other examples in science that point to order. They point to a plan, they point to design, right? It's a reminder of exactly who God is. Now, I just want to kind of sum this up this day before we move on with just a real simple phrase. I want you to understand this. The Bible describes all of this as the creative act of God, right? The Bible doesn't describe it as something that just happened by natural circumstances, the Bible doesn't describe it as something that just happened by chance. The Bible very clearly demonstrates to us that this is a creative act to demonstrate the power and the glory of the Lord. Okay? So day two, God gives us this atmosphere that's perfect for life. Now let's look at days three and four in your Bibles beginning in verse nine. <clears throat> that's kind of small. I hope you can read it. And God said, if not, read it in your Bibles. Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. Now we're talking about land, Right? And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters and he called them seas and God saw that it was good. Now verse 11. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation. Seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to the various kinds and it was so. The land produced vegetation. Plants bearing, bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and then there was morning the third day. Now on to verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. 
Let them serve as signs and mark, to mark the seasons and the days and the year. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light to the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. Interesting, we'll get to this in a second. But notice he doesn't call them sun and moon. There's a reason for that. He made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars, verse 17. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. There's that pattern. That pattern's going to come back in a little while, so pay attention to that. It was good. It was good. We see this over and over. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Here's the second truth I want you to see this morning. Not only do we see an atmosphere that's created perfectly to sustain life, but number two, God's now going to form the dry land and he's going to fill the sky with lights. He's going to form the land and he's going to fill the sky with lights and he's going to do this so we can survive. He's going to do this so we can live, so we can thrive. Now we put up a chart last week. I want to show it to you again. It's kind of the the order of creation. And if you kind of study through these six days of creation, you know they can be broken down into kind of two main groups. The first one is God forms. So days one, two, and three, God is forming, right? He's forming by creating the light and he's separating the water below, the water above, creating the sky. He's bringing the land together. He's forming the vegetation. He's taking this formless earth and he's forming it so life can exist. And then go to the next slide. He's going to fill it. He's going to fill it with the things that not only bring us life, but that produce life. The sun, moon, and the stars in day four. Days five, bird and fish. Day six, animals and man. There's this interesting, we talked about it last week, parallel between the days. So we've already seen that God is forming. He's creating. He's making it so that we can live in it. And now we're going to move into this phase where he begins to fill it. Now notice with me again in verse 14, if you can. If you'd pull that up for me, Stephen. Verse 14 of Genesis 1. I want you to notice what the Lord does. It's very interesting here. He says in verse 14 that God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And watch this. There's a purpose for them now. If you can see that in verse 14. Let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. Now it's interesting here because God is going to give us this pattern, right? So think with me just for a second through this. God has already given us this pattern in the days of creation. We see days one, two, and three coincide with four, five, and six. There's a pattern and a plan and created order there. Within, just narrow down a little bit more, let's narrow the scope. Within each day, there's a pattern, right? God said it was so. He created, he saw that it was good. He named it, and then there was evening and morning, the first, second, third day, right? Even within each day, there's now pattern. You see that? There's design, There's a purpose. It all points to the creation. It all points to the creative element of the Lord. It all points to the fact that he had a plan from the beginning. But watch this. Even now within the creation itself, there's going to be order. Look at what he says in verse 14. He's created these lights so they can serve as signs to mark the seasons and the days and the year. How do we order our calendar in today's world? Based on what? Sun, right? The sun tells us how long, how long it takes to get around the sun is a year, correct? As the earth rotates on its axis one time, that's a, what we call that, a day. We divide that into hours, the sunlight and darkness. It's, where does it come from? It comes from the, the fact that the Lord has given us these signs, these greater lights, to give us, as he says, seasons and to mark days and years. So God has given us this created order through the, through the days of each creation, within each day. And now he's going to, this is interesting, he's going to take the creation itself and allow the creation to give us order. Do you see that? 
Through his creation, we have order. It's just this, it's this continual pattern of planning. It's a continual pattern that the Lord has designed this. That it just didn't just happen, that it was random. But I told you to notice something very interesting here in verse 16. God doesn't refer to, or Moses when he writes this, doesn't refer to the sun or the moon. Instead, he talks about a greater light and a lesser light. Now, one of the things we always have to do when we try to understand the context of what we're reading is understand it in the language of the people that originally read it. So what did the original audience understand this to mean? And you understand as you begin to study this, the Israelites and Moses, you understand that they were surrounded on all sides by other nationalities, by other people, by other belief systems. And often these other belief systems would look to the heavens, they would look to the stars, and they would look to the sun and the moon, and they would see those as deities, as gods, right? Now I'm going to test your uh, historical knowledge here. You ready? You're going to get this one. The Egyptian god Ra is the god of the what? You remember? Sun, right? He's the deity of the sun. And so if you study ancient Egyptian or Sumerian or Babylonian, you study their ancient cultures, they ascribed to the heavens deities. These were gods. These were things that ruled over them. Now watch this. What Moses does when he writes this is he gives them this, this clear, this opposite picture of the, of the, the heavens and the earth. He says the, the stars and the moon and the sun are not in fact deities. Instead, he says they are created by God. They are not only created by God, but he controls them. He sustains them. He uses them to bring order to his creation. It's stark contrast to the secular views of the other part of the world. Gordon J. Wenham wrote in his commentary these words. In neighboring cultures, the sun and the moon were some of the most important gods. And the stars were often credited with controlling human destiny. It's interesting, if you've ever studied astrology... The idea that the stars can predict the future, right? Or that we should look to the stars to make our decisions. It's been like that for thousands of years. But the created order and the picture of Genesis kind of stands in stark contrast to that. We shouldn't look to the sun and moon as gods. We should look to the one true God that created them. Because they fall under his control. I had somebody this week, it's it's been very kind of... Humorous and interesting to me. Everywhere I go in town, people want to stop me and talk about Genesis, which is really cool to me. I've I've enjoyed that. And so I'll I'll, I'll be sitting in a restaurant or I'm walking through Walmart or whatever and somebody stops me and they want to ask me a question, which is great. I enjoy talking about it. But I was sitting in a restaurant last week. Guy comes up to me. I ain't even got my food yet. And and he said, now listen. He said, I'm enjoying the series. I'm really looking forward to what you're going to be preaching and we're going to be there. But he said, I was thinking last week, you were talking about that uh, the Bible says that God created light first, Right? God created light, but then it's a few days later he created the sun. It's an interesting question, right? So his question was this, well, how do we have light without the sun? Well, there's, there's a very clear verse that speaks to that. I want you to kind of pay attention to where it's found because I'm going to point some out to you here in just a second. Revelation chapter 21, verse 23. Listen to the words. Speaking of the end of time. And the city, this is the new Jerusalem, has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. For... The glory of God gives it light. See that? So there's, this, there's this really cool kind of, so imagine bookends, right? The first bookend is Genesis chapter 1. When God first speaks, what does he create? Do you remember? Light. 
Let there be what? Light. It's a picture of the glory of the Lord. It's, it's prevalent through the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. That the, the light that we see oftentimes depicts the glory of the Lord. He begins with his glory all the way through creation, all the way to the end of time in Revelation 21. And he says, we're not going to need the sun at the end. Why? Because of the glory of the Lord is going to bring it light. Isn't that a beautiful picture? From beginning through all of human history to the very end, the glory of the Lord prevails. You see that? The light of the glory of the Lord dominates. So we see this, this beautiful picture. Day two, God's given us atmosphere. Day three, God's given us land and vegetation. He's preparing. Day four, now he's put the sun and the moon. Not deities, but part of the created order. And in fact, themselves giving us order. Again, it's a picture of the order we find in creation. Now to verse 20 as we continue to move through this this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. And God said, here's the pattern again, right? We see the pattern over and over. It points to planning It points to the picture of his uh, creative order and the fact that he wants us to see order. Verse 20, And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let the birds fly above and the earth and across the expanse of the sky. Now just pause for a second, because remember, day two now, he's preparing, we saw this a minute ago, he's preparing the atmosphere. He's separating the water below, which would be the ocean, and the fresh water, and the water above, which is the sky. Now in day five, he's going to fill those things. So he fills the water below with what? Living creatures, the water team with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the sky, right? So he's filling now, he's prepared, he's formed, he's filling now what he's created, verse 21. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teams according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. By the way, this is a command that we see all through Genesis. He's going to say it to Adam and Eve as well. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. Verse 23, and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Right? We see the same pattern. Here's truth number three. I want you to see this one. We're going to delve into this just a little bit. Truth number three is that life begins on day five. So God has formed, God has prepared, God has gotten everything in place, God's gotten everything ready. Now on day five, for the first time, he's going to create life. Now I just want to be very clear up to this point. All the things we've seen, all the things we've studied through this account in Genesis, we've seen design, we've seen a plan, we've seen organization. We see the Lord at this point now filling the earth with life. Now I want to pause for a second and think through something because I know there's a question that a lot of people are asking in their minds. There's probably a question that you've already asked or you're considering or maybe you're considering even right now. And so I want to think through this just for a few minutes because I think it's a topic we need to discuss based on our study in the book of Genesis. Here's the question some of you are asking. You're saying, I get what the scripture teaches. I get what the Lord says, and I see you're right. There's, just, there's, there's design through and through. But here's the question you're asking. What do I do with evolution? Because, Adam, there, there are people in the world. There are people maybe at my school or people that I work with or I've read this guy. There's somebody out there. What do we do with evolution? Well, instead of just thinking specifically about evolution, I want to answer this very clear question. What, as followers of Jesus Christ, as believers, as Christians, what should believers or how should believers view evolution? If you're a follower of Christ, how should you 
view and understand evolution. I understand this is a touchy subject. I understand this sparks a lot of debate, but I want to ask you to do something just for a couple of minutes. I want to ask you as, as much as possible, I know this is very difficult to do because everybody comes to, a, to a, a discussion with a preconceived notion. I want you to set aside what you think you know, what you think you've learned, or what you think you've heard. I want you to set all that aside as best you can just for a few minutes. Just as best you can set that aside. And let's allow the word of God to speak. Okay, let's just start there. Let's not get confused. There's a lot of science and light, and we're going to get to that. In fact, next week, we're going to hit that pretty hard. So if you've got a friend that you think would be interested in this, that questions this, or thinks a lot about evolution, or is concerned or confused, that would be the week to bring them. Bring them. I'd love to talk to them. I think there's an awful lot of science that points to design. In fact, I don't have time this morning to do, but you should do the research. All these evolutionists that have kind of espoused this, pe- this period of millions of years and the fact that everything evolved out of nothing. There's a, there's a growing movement of a lot of those scientists to move to what's called intelligent design. How many have heard of intelligent design? It's the idea, here's what's happening. And I, I'm going I'm to highlight this and talk about this next week. But there are a lot of scientists, secular scientists now, that are looking at the facts and going, you know what? There's just too much pattern here in creation. <laughs> There's a plan here somewhere. Now, a lot of them won't go as far as to say it's the Lord. And that's interesting. We'll talk about that. But what they are saying is, you know what? I'm not sure evolution's real. I'm not sure I can follow it. There's too much of a plan. There's too much of a pattern. And so this idea of intelligent design has sprung up. It's very interesting. We'll, we'll talk about that. But I want to think for a few minutes, as a follower of Christ, how we ought to evaluate and understand evolution. Now, I'm going to make just kind of my thesis statement, my big statement. Here's the, here's the truth that I want to now defend over the next few minutes. I believe that based on the truth of the word of God, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should reject evolution. I think as followers of Jesus Christ, based on the truth of the word of God, I think we need to reject evolution. I'm going to give you two main reasons why, two biblical reasons. Again, there's a lot of science to point to design. We'll talk about that. We're not going there now. I want to think specifically about the Bible. Why? Should we believe, or why should we refute this idea of evolution? Why, why should we reject this idea of evolution? There are two major foundational biblical reasons. Here's truth number one. We should reject evolution as followers of Jesus Christ, number one, because evolution is an attempt to explain the origins of the universe without God. Now, just let that sink in just for a second, okay? Now, some of you may be thinking, ah, he's, he's, he's lost it now. He's walking down a dangerous road here because the world says and science says and there's evidence that just, just set all that aside and understand the premise of evolution. This is really important as a follower of Christ. Evolution is an attempt to explain the origins of the universe without God. If you believe in evolution as it's currently taught all around the world and as scientists teach it, then you understand that evolution is a fundamental attempt to remove the Lord from our world. Period. That's what it is. Now, you should do some reading. I think it's fair to read both sides of an argument. I don't ever want to be a pastor that just says this and has never really examined this. I think it's fair to examine both. So you should read some of the leading evolutionists in our world. You'll find something very interesting about evolution if you read some of these guys. The leading evolutionists in our world, watch this, are also leading atheists. You ever notice that? When you read these books and they quote these evolutionists, if you do just a little bit of research on what these folks believe and go read some of the other books that they've written, they're against God. 
They're totally against God and all the things that they teach and all the things they believe. They're, they're atheists through and through. And I want to give you a couple of quotes just to prove this. Richard Dawkins, who is a leading evolutionist, said this. You may have heard his name. You can't even begin to understand biology. You can't understand life unless you understand what it's all there for, how it arose, and that means evolution, right? No mention of God, no mention of creation, simply that it all evolved. Now, here's the interesting thing about Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is a leading evolutionist. He's also a leading atheist. Why would that be, Adam? Because if you're going to preach and believe evolution, it leads you to the very simple logical conclusion that God doesn't exist. That's what evolution says. Stephen Jay Gould, some of you may know his name. He's a famous evolutionist that died a few years ago. I've got his quote up on the screen. Listen to what he says. He said, life began three and a half billion years ago, necessarily about as simple as it could be because life, and here it is, arose spontaneously, isn't that interesting, from the organic compounds in the primeval oceans, right? No mention of God, no mention of a design, no mention of a creator, life spontaneously appeared. Here's the interesting thing about Richard, Stephen Jay Gould. Not only is he a leading evolutionist, he's a leading atheist, Right? The process of evolution literally leads us to the conclusion that there is no God. Now, I want to make a statement. I've got it on the screen. I want you to listen to it. This is true in all of life. When someone teaches that there's no God, we shouldn't see it as science. We should see it instead as an assault on Christianity. Now, I don't, I don't, know, how, I don't know where I've missed it here. I'm, I'm looking biblically at this. If you're going to tell me there's somebody that preaches that there is no God... I'm going to tell you, biblically, as followers of Christ, we have to reject that. We have to reject it as a very clear assault on Christianity. But I want to take it a step farther, because I don't, I don't think that evolution is just unbiblical or untrue. I think it's destructive. Now, now, think with me through this just for a few minutes, okay? Evolution teaches us that there is no God. It would say that we evolved over millions of years and kind of have become what we are now. When we believe this process of evolution, here's what you're saying. You're ultimately saying that human beings have evolved from some other life form. Right? Now, we'll talk more about that next week. But what we're ultimately saying, if you kind of think through it logically, is that the human life is no more important than any other life on the planet, is it? We're the same as animals. Now, it's, watch this. It's this sort of thinking that leads... What you, would, what you would think to be sane and rational men and women to say something like this, when you, when you buy into this logic, they say things like this, we need to be saving the whales while at the same time murdering babies in their mother's womb, right? You can't arrive at that conclusion unless you take God out and say human life has no value. There's no sanctity of life. We've evolved from other animals. We're no different. We're not created in the image of God because there is no God. We've just kind of risen up from the primeval soup, so to speak, and evolved into this. Why would we ever think we're better than something else? We don't think we're better. We just see in creation that God created us, kind of as the jewel of creation, and he created us in his image. But when you remove God and you remove the image of God, it leads us into, watch this, it leads us into this, into this spiraling, spiraling pattern into a culture of death. If our lives are not important... If we're not created in the image of God, if there's no afterlife and what we're here on earth for is irrelevant in the grand scheme of things, then why does anything matter? 
Now, you see this played out all through society, right? Abortion's not a big deal anymore. Why? Because the sanctity of life's not important. Euthanasia is not important. It's not a big deal, right? Why? Because humans are no different than animals. Remember the story several weeks ago, the young lady that was terminally ill with cancer and committed suicide? Do you remember the story? She was euthanized. I'm not, I, don't, I, don't wanna, I don't go to euthanasia right now, but here's the very, just a fascinating thing to me. Almost every article you read saw her as a hero, right? Did you notice that? Good for her, they would say, that she did this. Now, I'm not, again, I don't want to get into that subject, but here's the point. The world doesn't see life as important. There's no sanctity of life. We're no different than anything else, right? Mass murder, it's okay. Genocide, it's okay. It happens on the other side of the world. We don't care. On and on this list goes showing us that life isn't important. Now, I don't, I, I'm not preaching against this, so don't get mad, but zombies are pretty interesting now, aren't they? Right? Zombies all of a sudden are a big deal. They're shows, they're movies. Fifteen years ago, nobody talked about zombies. Now, I'm not saying you're going to hell if you saw a zombie movie. I've seen a zombie movie. I'm not saying that. Just be clear, okay? But what I am saying is, isn't it interesting, our fascination with death? Isn't it interesting? Abortion, euthanasia, genocide, mass murder, zombies. I mean, there's just this pattern of death. Why? Because we've been sold this false bill of goods that our lives don't matter. We've been sold this lie that there's no sanctity in life. We were created in the image of God. Do you understand that? And the devil through evolution does what he always does. He takes the beauty of God's creation and he twists it just a little bit to confuse us. And to question who the Lord is. And to take it to a place that the Lord doesn't want us to be. So that's reason one. I'm finishing up. Stay with me. I know I'm running long. Just stay with me, okay? That's a big picture. We should reject evolution very simply because it removes God from everything. As followers of Christ, we can't stand for things that remove God from all of creation. We just can't. Here's truth number two. Here's the second reason we should reject evolution. Number two, the Bible teaches that death did not exist before sin entered the world. Now, we've gone from big picture, let's go down to, let's whittle it down a little more theological here, right? Evolution would teach us that for millions of years, animals have lived and died and fought and battled and evolved, and there's been death for millions of years, and all of a sudden, the human race kind of rose up out of that, and from that, we exist today. The problem with that model is the Bible tells us before, watch this, think with me through this now, before Adam and Eve sinned, there was no death, that's what the Bible says, So all the created order that leads up to Adam and Eve, there's no death before that. Now, just just to stay consistent, if you believe those were six 24-hour literal days, that makes perfect sense, right? Things were created, animals were created the day before Adam and Eve. They weren't there for billions of years. But I want you to listen to what Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says. This is the clear biblical implication here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through man and death Through sin. You see that? Before sin, there was no death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death, right? It's a picture. It's all through Scripture. Because we sin, that leads to death. Before sin, there was no death. Now, some people would say this. Well, that just just applies to humans. There was no problem with sin in the the created order. There was no problem. Animals died well before Adam. Well, I want you to listen to Romans 8. 18 through 22, 20 through 22. In fact, I've got it on the screen for you. I want you to notice what Paul says here. For the creation, that's everything. Just follow with me here. For the creation was subjected to futility, right? It was, it was subjected not willingly. Like the creation did want to go through this. 
The created order did not want to go through this, but because of him who subjected, right? That's Adam. Because of Adam's sin, he subjected creation, even though they were not willing, to futility, to sinfulness, to disease, to death, to destruction. Yet in hope that the creation itself, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage, right? All of creation is in bondage to sin. But if if that's not enough, follow with me here. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Look at verse 22. For we know that the, what's that word? What's the next word? Whole creation. It doesn't say part of the creation. It doesn't say people only. It doesn't say humans. We know that the whole creation has been what? Groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's this sense that after sin entered the world, after death entered the world, all of creation was punished Adam was sent out of the garden and told he's going to have to tend the field that God was cursing the ground. You remember that? We can't make evolution fit because there was no death before sin. Just to kind of bolster that argument just a little bit as I finish up right here, the Bible tells us that after each day, God looked and approved of it by saying what it was. What's the word he uses? Good. There was no sin, there was no destruction, there was no death. Everything was good. There's only one exception to that pattern. It's in verse 31 of chapter 1. And God saw everything that he'd made, all of creation, and behold, it was, anybody want to guess? Very good. God said, I've created the world and it's perfect. And then sin enters and everything changes. You say, Adam, there's, there's a lot of science now. There's a lot of things you need to talk about. There's evolution and dinosaurs. We're going to look at all that stuff next week. <laughs> you got to come back for that, right? But I want to finish by doing something a little bit different this morning. And we got a verse on the screen, Psalm chapter 104. I want to read this together. It's a picture of the glory of the Lord. Let's read it out loud together. We're going to finish with this this morning. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your beauty and creation. Thank you for the clear design and order that you've given us. Thank you, Father, that the word of God is true and compelling and evident. I pray, Father, we would live our lives by it. Give us the strength and the courage to be faithful to the truth of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to finish our service this morning as we always do. We give you a chance to respond. You can come and pray. Maybe you want to pray about somebody in your life. Maybe you want to pray about an unreached people group. Maybe you want to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Or maybe you want to join the church. But this is your time to respond as we sing together. You come. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.